Amen. You may be seated. What is a church? If you grew up going to church as a child, you probably learned this little nursery rhyme, and you're to feel free right now to join me in it. You do like this with your hands to start. You know where I'm going? Here is the church, and here is the steeple. Open the door, and here's all the people, right? It came, you know, of course, with hand motions, and it was taught to tens of millions of children, probably hundreds of millions of time, and it taught all those children something that is totally not true. Something that has had damaging, even destructive consequences in so many different ways. Now, I don't want to like ruin your childhood or anything like that. If you still feel good about that nursery rhyme, just keep feeling good about it. But I'm just telling you, it's not telling you the truth. Our new series uh, that we're starting this morning is called Rediscover Church, A People, Not a Place. And we are going together be exploring for several weeks now this question, what is a church? And it's a very important time, I think, for us to be doing this because, you know, it's been about exactly two years now that so many things in our world have just changed, maybe forever. Church is actually one of those things that has changed. Since March of 2020, millions and millions of people have experienced church virtually more than physically. Millions and millions of more people have decided to do neither. More people than ever before are asking the question, does church really matter? Does it really matter? Does it matter if I attend in person or if I just watch it online? Does it matter if I'm a member of a church or a part of a church in any meaningful sense? Can I just believe and not belong? What if I love Jesus but I can't stand the church? So what is a church? What is church? What is church about? And I think you will recognize this truth that people are more polarized than ever before. And church is one of the things that people are increasingly polarized about. There are lots and lots of questions that need to be asked. And so we're gonna spend some time together these few weeks going to God's word, looking for answers. And I I wanna begin today by looking at the foundation of the church, which is Jesus. We're gonna do that by looking at what it means to be Jesus' people in 2022, in the days that are ahead. And so I wanna invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. It's chapter 16 where we're gonna be today, verses 13 to 28. And you know, if you've been around here, you know this, for many, many years now here at Southwinds, we have believed that God is always at work building his church, that God is always up to something in and through his people. And so we continue to believe that God wants to do something special in this time, in this season of this new normal, whatever it is and whatever it's gonna be. And so with that in mind, will you join me as we read God's word together? It's gonna be on the screen as well. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 28. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, 
Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people say, amen. amen. Here's what this, this series for the next few weeks is going to be about. As we are moving beyond these past two years and moving into whatever it is that is ahead of us, we need to make sure that we are clear on who we are as a church. And so today I wanna to begin a conversation and it's a conversation about who we are, uh, about what God is calling us to do and to be as a church. It's about how God is gonna take us there. And I wanna root this conversation in a conversation that comes toward the end of Jesus' ministry. It's the conversation we just read Matthew 16, uh, if you read the entire gospel, you will pick up that Jesus is about to head to Jerusalem where he is going to be crucified. And this, it, this right here is a hugely pivotal moment in the life of Jesus' disciples. But they don't know that yet. And there's also something going on in this account that most of us would tend to miss, but that would have been very, very striking to a first century reader, and it is the location of this conversation. Verse 13, Matthew tells us that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. I wanna show you a map, give you a little perspective. You will notice where Jerusalem is down near the bottom of the map, not too far from the Red Sea. If you move up the map, you follow the line of the Jordan River, you'll see Galilee. This is where Jesus was from, where he grew up. There's Nazareth, there's Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did so very much of his ministry. But then notice near the top of the map, Caesarea Philippi, all the way up north. 
Jesus takes his disciples to this town. And I wanna unpack this because there is something that's really mind-blowing about to take place. Caesarea Philippi is 26 miles away from Galilee. That's a long way to walk. There are no Jewish settlements up there. And in addition, it is a remarkably pagan place. Caesarea Philippi is located in a beautiful place. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. This beautiful mountain is actually over 9,000 feet high. And at the base of this mountain, there is a spring. And in Jesus' day, a spring uh, had water that flowed out of a cave. About 150 years ago, an earthquake uh, moved the, uh, the, the spring's flow, changed it. But back then, water was always gushing out of this cave from underground. It was one of the main sources of the Jordan River. And in a very dry and very desert-like area, this gift of water and, and life and growth made this a place of great beauty. But it was also a place of all kinds of pagan worship. In Old Testament days, Baal was worshiped here because Baal, as you may know, was a fertility god and, and people thought that he brought water and life and crops, food, what you needed to live. He was also the god of the underworld. And so they actually believed that this spring, because it came up from underground in such a mysterious way, they believed that it was the place where the spirits of the underworld entered our world. Ray Vanderlaan writes about this. He said they called this spring the cave where the water comes gushing out, this place where Baal was, start, was thought to come out. They called this place the gates of Hades. Keep that in mind. It's Caesarea Philippi. It's, it's called the, the gates of Hades. And by Jesus' day, Baal wasn't really worshiped much anymore, but there was another god worshiped here at Caesarea Philippi, his name was Pan. Anybody ever remember the Greek god Pan, half goat, half god, goat feet, goat legs, goat horns? He was kind of a nasty guy. Um, and as a general rule, goats are not seen as creatures of you know, high moral character. They saw Pan also in this day as a god of fertility. And I'm not gonna talk about it. You can go look it up if you want to. You can read about it. The worship of Pan in this day involved sexual practices that were unspeakably offensive to even a nominally devout Israelite. Pan was also thought to be a god who would inspire confusion and chaos and disorder in his enemies. He was a useful God. If you had enemies, you would try to get Pan to curse them. And the Greeks actually had a word for this. They called this, this spirit of disorder and chaos panic. That's where we get our word, panic. It comes from the, the God Pan. We also have a word that relates to this called pandemonium. Like this is a Greek combination of words and daimon is where we get the word demon. So it's like all the, the demons, all the spirits of disorder and chaos, they come from the god Pan. And by the way, if you didn't know this, the word Pan in Greek also means all. And so these days, we have another word that comes from this. We call it pandemic. Pandemic. It's all, all the god Pan. 
And this is where Jesus brings his disciples. No, no respectable rabbi brought his disciples there. One scholar says there was actually an ancient rabbinic saying that said this, when Messiah comes, the gates of Caesarea Philippi will collapse. It was such a depraved place, such a place of evil. And it wasn't just about Pan. Caesarea Philippi was named for Caesar. And there was this big temple built by Philip to Caesar, so emperor worship was going on there as well. And if you go to this place, and I actually have a, a friend who is there right now. He actually put pictures up on social media earlier this week. If you go to this place and you look at this rock in this uh, you'll still see these, these niches that have been cut into the rock, these places where statues to Pan and other gods were placed. There's still these inscriptions to them there, and they were worshiped there. Ray Vanderlaan says this could be called the rock of the gods. So hang on to that phrase, the rock of the gods. The disciples are here with Jesus. They're probably wondering, what in the world is Jesus doing? Why is he taking us to this place, walking 26 miles out of our way, all the way up here to Caesarea Philippi? If you read the Gospels, you'll discover that nothing else at all happens here. There are no crowds gathered for teaching or for healings, just this, this one conversation between Jesus and his disciples. This one conversation in this strange place that's such a long way out of their way. So what's going on? Well, it seems that Jesus, who is, of course, a master teacher, wants to make an unforgettable point. And he begins the conversation by saying to them, who do people say that I am? And they answer him. Some say this, some say that. And then Jesus asks the question, the question that every one of us will be asked one day, that's you, that's me, every one of us. So it's a really, really good question to give serious, serious thought to. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so there, right there at the, the rock of the gods, all these dead wannabe gods, these false gods, these pagan gods, these idols, Peter there proclaims, you, Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, and now it starts to get really interesting, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Many of you already probably know that what Jesus means when he says this rock has been a highly controversial issue down through the centuries. If you have uh, ever been a part of the Roman Catholic Church, you have probably uh, learned and heard that the, the Catholic Church understands it to refer to Peter as the first pope. He's the first in the line of the papacy. Um, in our tradition, which is the broad Protestant tradition, we, we don't see it that way. It is generally understood that Jesus uh, is referring to the faith that Peter has in Jesus. That's the rock, that's the foundation. 
Rabbis in that day often, they would teach with kind of more than one layer to their words. And the rock, of course, is this great image. It's all across the scriptures in the Old Testament. The psalmist says more than once, God, you are my rock. You are my salvation. And Paul is gonna go on to call Jesus the living rock. Peter is going to call him that. And so you remember, Jesus has taken them to this place. It's very intentional. He has a point, this place where they can come and they can look at this rock of the gods. And I think that, that part of what Jesus is saying is, on this rock right here, this rock that seems so full of evil, this rock that is so pagan, this, this rock that is covered over with so much spiritual confusion and sexual anarchy and, and violence and abuse, all these horrible things where money and power and pleasure is worshiped. Jesus says, on this rock, Right here, I'm gonna build my church. And it's a really bold statement for him to make because remember right now as he says this, Jesus, he's just a carpenter, he's just a guy, and he only has 12 followers and they're not really very impressive. They have no money, they have no resources, they have no power, and they come to this God-forsaken place and Jesus says on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then there's the next line. Some of you know it, know it this way. On this rock, I will build my church in the gates of, and Hades literally is what it says, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. It is such a powerful declaration. But a lot of times, a lot of us, we just get this image all wrong. Because a lot of us, when we think about the gates, we tend to think of the church as kind of maybe being locked up behind the gates and we just have to kind of huddle together, you know, pray a lot and then we have to build up our own little subculture with our own little institutions, our own little activities, all separate from the rest of the world, all the while we're out there on the other side of the gates, these forces of darkness and secularism or whatever, they are pounding on our walls, they are trying to get in. That's how a lot of people think. Maybe you think that. But think about it again. That is not what that image means at all. It really would make no sense if you stop to think about it. The image Jesus is using here is so very different. He's really saying, look around Look around you. He's saying there are all these people, all these people enslaved. They're enslaved by ignorance, by fear, by confusion, by sin. All these people living their lives in a sense of panic. And Jesus is saying to his followers, I have no intention of standing passively by while this happens to them. I am going after them. I am taking down the gates of hell. I have the keys. I got them from my dad. <laughs> now who wants to go with me? See, that's what we're talking about here. Gates are not an offensive weapon. Do you understand? The gates of hell are a defensive weapon. We are on offense. We are to take the gates down. So what's Jesus' plan? How, how's he gonna do this? Well, not with an army, not by any force, not by legislation, and no one in the history of the world had ever had a thought like the one Jesus is trying to unpack for this little group right here. Go back again to verse 20 when it begins. 
with these words, from that time on. Again, this is the same conversation in Caesarea Philippi. Verse 21 says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus says, I'm gonna break down the gates of hell by descending into hell. And he did. Jesus says, I'm going to defeat the power of hatred by enduring more in my love than hatred can ever dole out. I will defeat death by dying on a cross and then by rising again from the dead. The power of my life is greater than death. It's an unbelievable story. There at the rock of the gods, at the gates of hell, Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church and those gates are not gonna prevail against my church's assault. Let's move this up to the present, to 2022, and talk about us, our, our church. Why does Jesus have us here? I mean, put the story in our terms. Jesus, he, he takes his disciples to the city with this reputation as the most pagan, the most secular, the most skeptical, the most sexually avant-garde, the most spiritually untethered city in the country. Think about it. We, we live in a region that orbits around a city just like that, don't we? And of course, it's not just the city and if you don't know what I mean by the city, it means you're not from around here, <laughs> right? You have to explain that to people in other parts of the country. But it's not just the city. It's here in our cities, in Tracy and Mountain House and Lathrop. It's, it's where we live. Because the gates of Hades really are, when you think about it, wherever sin runs rampant. Wherever children get neglected or abused, wherever sexual, out, sexual activity outside marriage is seen as standard operating procedure, contrary to God's law, wherever greed gets glorified and applauded, wherever anger and hate get unleashed, where racism denigrates people God created in his own image, where sin gets excused, where self-righteous judgmentalism carries the day, wherever God's word is unknown and God's truth is unheeded, wherever God's love is unexpressed, that's where the gates of hell are. And Jesus is saying, we are not gonna hide from the gates of hell. We're not afraid of them. We're gonna confront the gates of hell and, and we do not do it in arrogance. We, we, we do not do it thinking we have all the answers. We fight in humility with love that gets fully expressed on a cross. And Jesus is gonna go on to say, if you wanna follow me, you have to take up your cross. You have to deny yourself. So here's the question, and it's a serious question, and it's an important question, and I'm asking you, do you wanna get in on this mission? Do you wanna be a part of what Jesus is doing? Anybody here wanna join Jesus in building his church? even in the new normal. You know, our, our vision 
which is the reason we exist, is to see people who are far from God, people who don't know God yet, come to know him through the death and life of his son Jesus, and then to grow into fully devoted followers of his. And and friends, I'm telling you, this is what it means to be Jesus' people. This is the kind of church Jesus wants to build here, a church madly in love with Jesus, a church with a broken heart for people far from God, a church willing to confront the gates of hell. So before we go to the Lord's table in a few moments, I'm gonna give you three truths. Three truths for Jesus' people Three truths you can take down and think about. I hope you'll discuss them in your life groups. Three truths that I hope you'll always remember whenever you read this passage. So here's the first one. This passage tells us this. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. For Jesus' people, it's always all about Jesus. In verses 15 and 16, again, we see Peter's magnificent confession. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And these are, these are words uh, so filled with certainty that come to us in this world of such uncertainty. These ringing declaration. We, we, we don't see it fully in the English translation, but in Peter's original words, the the text here has four definite articles. These verses literally would read, you are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. And this is the most important truth and reality that any person must ever face and must ever decide about. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus who he says he is? Because listen to me, if he is, it changes everything. It changes everything. If Jesus is God, then as God, he demands our everything. It's all about Jesus. And that means everything about our church, about church, wherever it is, must be about him. It's all about Jesus. And here's the thing. It's so easy for us to get that mixed up. See, if we're gonna build the kind of church Jesus wants to build, it must be a church focused on, centered on Jesus. And so I just wanna ask you, and you need to be honest with yourself, because truth is you're probably not gonna see the truth at first because you don't wanna admit it to yourself. But here's the question. When you think about Southwinds, when you think about what goes on here, what matters most for you? What do you walk through these doors expecting Is it something to do with a kind of music? Is it something to do with the right message topics or maybe messages that help you with your life or your problems? Is it programs for your kids? Is it something else? Or is it first, foremost, about Jesus? I'm gonna ask you, maybe maybe your life somehow in the last two years has moved away somewhat from that. Maybe that's what God wants to teach you now that life is about Jesus, it's not about me. Say it's not about me. You probably should say that every day just to keep up the practice. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's all about Jesus. Life is about, life is about proclaiming the truth that Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God. 
So that's a very important question we all need to be asking before we live another day in this new normal. Do I see my life and my church's life as about Jesus? Or am I getting kind of twisted around the axle about some other things? There's a great statement in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 36. It says this, for when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. Now, generation means all the people who were alive when David was alive, young, old, whoever. David, David it says, he served God's purpose in his generation, and we want to do that in our generation. And that means we want to be a church that reaches everyone we can, young and old, everyone in our sphere, everyone who needs Jesus, because everyone needs Jesus. And you know, some of you in this room right now, some of you are old, and there's a generation of people who need God and are facing the questions people facing the end of life face. Jesus wants to reach that generation. Some of you are young and you cannot believe how old some other people are. <laughs> there's a generation of younger people who need Jesus so much, but maybe they've been turned off by the church. Jesus wants to reach that generation. Some of you are not sure if you are young or if you're old. That means you are old, okay? <laughs> but whoever you are, Jesus wants to build a church that's all about him because that's where the life is. That's where the joy is. That's where the satisfaction is in him, in Jesus. And so I, I want you, as we think about this truth, to, I wanna encourage you to pray a prayer. It's simply this, Jesus, help me make it all about you. Would you pray that prayer? Would you make that part of what it means to be one of his followers in your life? Here's the second truth I want you to see about being Jesus' people. Jesus promises his people will overcome and this is part of the privilege that we have being Jesus' people. We overcome. In him, we overcome. Verses 17 and 18, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, as we think about why we are here as a church, this is just fundamental. Jesus is saying, I will build my church. So whose church are we? If you wanna circle that word my to remind yourself, it'll help you. We are Jesus' church. Jesus thought of the church. Jesus started the church. Jesus picked the church. Jesus taught the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus was resurrected for the church. Jesus then sent his spirit to guide the church. And Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for the church. Amen. See, if anyone this morning could use a little bit of good news, one day Jesus is coming back for his church. Amen. It's his church it's Jesus' church, and, and that's why his church will overcome. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus, right? We may be discouraged at times, wondering if we can make it, and this time we're living in may be unlike anything any of us has ever personally faced, but Jesus still promises my church will overcome. 
See, we may face challenges as a church that will make us wonder if we can make it, make us wonder how can we ever deeply penetrate this culture? How can we ever really make a difference? But Jesus says, don't forget, I will build my church. I have another prayer that you could pray. It goes like this. Jesus, it's your church. Work in my life to overcome whatever is in front of me, whatever frightens me. Jesus, overcome through me. We can pray that prayer because we're Jesus people and we can overcome in him because we're Jesus people. And then third, and I saved the, the worst for last. Okay, I gave you the good stuff first. This one's a little harder. You're not gonna like it as much, but it's true and it's real and in the end it's life-giving. Jesus always calls his people to die. If you wanna be Jesus' people, you have to die. If you wanna be part of building Jesus' church, you have to die. Verses 24 to 26, again, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, what is that word? Anyone. If anyone would come after me, he must, say must. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be if a man for a man, if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? How many of you have ever been on a cruise? Just raise your hand if you've ever been on a cruise once, twice, however many times. Dan and I have been on one, and we actually, actually have some good friends right now on a cruise. Kind of made me think of this. And, and I, I started thinking about why so many people like to go on cruises. I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? You don't have to think really long about it. On a cruise, it's always all about me, right? I mean, they have all kinds of fun activities. You can play mini golf or hit golf balls into the ocean. There's bingo and there's karaoke. There's a trampoline park. There's video arcades. There's art classes and cooking classes. And you can have, go build a bear at the workshop for build a bear, you know, um, on and on and on. That's, uh, that, by the way, that's Chris Martinez's favorite thing to do. Um, <laughs> and then there's the food, the food buffets of any kind of food you want at any time you want. You can make yourself sick 24 hours a day, right? Steak and seafood and desserts and, and the chocolate fountain. The chocolate fountain. You can just dip stuff in the chocolate fountain, whatever you want. Again, 24-7. And then, then they stop at different places along the way. And when you, you can get off the boat and go on what they call excursions, you know, you can ride a zip line in the jungle or a, an ATV in Belize or a camel in Cabo. I, you can do that. I looked it up. I mean, there's so much fun. And in fact, on carnival cruises, it was kind of the, I think, the biggest one. They say, this is like their motto, they say you should choose fun. If you check out their ads, their ads tell us things like fun is a choice. We all need more fun. Fun is a necessity. Did you know it's a necessity that you have fun? They, they say fun makes you a better person, a better parent, 
a better friend. It, it helps you live your best life. So they say, carpe that diem. <laughs> this is how life was meant to be lived. They say, you have to choose fun. You need fun. Fun makes you a better person. It's actually a way of life, and it's a necessity. You, you might call it the way of the cruise. But if life is all about Jesus, is this the way? Jesus says it isn't. Jesus has another way for his people to live. It's been called for centuries the way of the cross. Jesus says to you, his followers, I love you and I want what is best for you, but I need to tell you, your best life always involves death. Jesus says, I died, and so if you want to follow me, so must you die as well. Do you want Jesus? Do you want his life? Look at the text again. Jesus says you have to do three things. Do you see them? He, he says you have to deny yourself. He says you have to take up your cross. And then 30 says you have to follow me. And so the Bible teaches that at the heart of being Jesus' people is living a Jesus life. And that means if Jesus came to die, that means to be Jesus' people, we have to share in his death. Bummer. But Jesus is actually, as I think we know, teaching something paradoxical. He is telling us something our culture never gets. Carnival certainly doesn't understand it. He is telling us that we cannot truly live without dying, that the essence of following Jesus means that all of us must die because that's the only way to truly live. That's the only way to live forever. Die to our sin and ourself. Live to Jesus. His will, what he loves, what he hates, his agenda, his plans. We have to die to ourselves. We have to live to him. And Jesus' word, his word is hard. But if you look carefully at what he's saying in this text, you'll notice he gives us three reasons why we would want to do what he's telling us to do. Why would we be wise to do what he says in these verses? There's three, maybe you could call them incentives to die. We, we see them in verses 25 to 27. And I wanna put the ESV translation up here because the ESV highlights something. Uh, each verse in these three verses begins with the little uh, word for, and it's giving a reason. Uh, this is what Jesus says. We'll read it in this again. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. As the Mandalorian says, this is the way, right? This is the way to save your life. You lose your life for Jesus' sake and you find it. This is the way. It's the only way. Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus says your soul your soul is more valuable than the whole world. 
Will you give up your soul for some fun? Your soul means more than anything. This should cause you to do what is best for your soul. Verse 27, again, begins with that little word for, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus says, you follow me, I'll give you eternal rewards. Rewards that will last forever. We die now, but we live eternally. We lose our lives now, but we gain eternal rewards. Death in Jesus leads to true life, which is far, far better than fun. Do you want to live or do you want to have fun? Jesus is calling us to die. It's what it it means for us to be Jesus' people. If we're going to be part of Jesus' church, part of building Jesus' church, we have to die. And so I just want to ask you today, and it's a serious question. You've heard it before, and a lot of you just brush it off. A lot of you let it just run over your head and move on out because you got stuff to do later today. But you need to hear the question. You need to respond to the question, what do you need to die to? in your life. What do you need to die to in your life so that Jesus can work in you to build his church, his people? Some of us sitting here this morning, maybe nobody else knows but us. We've got some sin in our lives. It's been there a while. It's taken over a whole lot of stuff. And maybe you're the only one that knows it. And maybe God brought you here today to tell you you need to repent. You need to die to that sin. You need to die to that fun that you somehow are thinking that that sin gives you, these habits that hold you back. What do you need to die to? Some of us uh, are here and we need to repair relationships. Maybe, maybe even in this church. Maybe to repent of things that we have done or we have said to others in this church. And our pride holds us back. We want to blame them. It's like their fault we want to say, will you die so that Jesus may give you life and he bring life to them through you, to others as you follow him. Some of us, And probably all of us in some way or another need to die to selfish agendas. Maybe you haven't really been honest with yourself, but maybe really you see Jesus' church as a a way to make your life better. Maybe truly, really for you in the final analysis, it's about you. It's not about Jesus. You know, time and talent and treasures is a great way to kind of describe pretty much everything in our lives. I want you to think about this. We, We often, many of us, give Jesus and his church our time after we've done pretty much everything we want to do. We give Jesus our talents in, in service after we, we service our own needs. We, we give Jesus our treasure, which is our, our money. And, and again, the Bible says it's all really his. It's not yours, it's his. He's just loaned it to you for a while. We give Jesus our treasure after we have spent it on what we want. 
So what do you need to die to right now so that Jesus can build his church, so that Jesus can receive the glory that he alone deserves? Where do you need to die? Here's another prayer to pray. It's a hard prayer, but everyone should learn to pray it. Jesus, where do I need to die? Where am I trying to save my life instead of losing it for you? Will you pray that prayer? See, as we make uh, dying to self, making sacrifices together, whatever those things may be in each of our lives, here's the thing. God is gonna work and God is gonna be glorified and people are gonna be, be loved. And people's lives are gonna be saved and healed. So in the weeks ahead, in this series, we're gonna continue to explore various parts of what it means to be Jesus' people, to be the church, a, a people, not a place. And we're gonna see how as Jesus' people we can belong because we're his family. We're gonna see how as Jesus' people we can serve and give and, and sacrifice because we're his body. And as Jesus' people, we're gonna see how we can love and, and witness because we're his bride. Friends, never forget this right here, where we are, where you live, your neighborhood, your community, your city. This is our Caesarea Philippi. It is where God has put us. And we are following still today, 2022, the one who says on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And on this rock, as I build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he invites you to join him in taking the gates of hell. What is the church? It's a people, not a place. Less in these weeks to come to rediscover what that means together. Because we don't have to wait. We can start right now following him, dying to self, making it all about Jesus. Let's be the church. Southwinds, let's be the church. Would you join me as we pray? As your heads are bowed, um, as we move to prayer, we're going to prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table. So Father, we come before you and we ask for your help. We need your help. Father, would, would you undo anything in our hearts that we have learned maybe from other people that tells us something that doesn't fit who your church is. Lord, maybe we need help to repent of anything uh, judgmental in our hearts against your bride. It's so easy, Lord, for us to see the flaws and not the beauty you are building. Help us to, Lord, see our flaws and confess our flaws more. Father, we need your help to make it all about Jesus. And we know we can't do that on our own, so we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit on us and to help us rediscover what it means, Lord, to be the church. And Lord, as we do, to take down the gates of hell so that lost people can be found. Lord, so that hurting people can be healed and so that your name can be glorified above all things because it's all about you. And we pray all these things in this strong and glorious and beautiful name of Jesus. All God's people said.